Bridge Kids, you're dismissed. Thank you uh, for worshiping with us today. The rest of us are in Ephesians chapter 2. I want to invite you to turn there. Uh, We've called this series, Let's See Your ID. The first three chapters, you remember, are about your identity in Christ. And the last three chapters are to be about your experience in Christ. The first three chapters are about your position, your standing before God. And the last three chapters are about um, your practice, what you do to serve God. And uh, we are still in those first three chapters as it relates to our position. The good news is God loves all people and sent his son Jesus to die on the cross and pay the penalty for our sin for all people. And the good news is God invites people everywhere to turn to him in faith by believing in his son, Jesus Christ. That's good news. And when people turn to God, amazing things happen. At one case in point, the Azusa Street Revival in 1906 in Los Angeles, California. Interesting thing about that is the entire decade before, over 1,000 African Americans were put to death, murdered, hanged, beaten, shot to death in this country. Fear and hostility were prevalent among many blacks and whites. Millions of people belonged to the Ku Klux Klan in the U.S. The Azusa Street Revival was led by an African-American man named William Seymour. And God worked in amazing ways as people turned to him by faith. Tens of thousands of people flocked to Los Angeles to find God. They came from all over the world and they came from all walks of life. They were men and women. They were rich and poor. They were Americans and non-Americans. They were black and white, Asian and Latino. They came by car, by horse, by buggy, and by the boat. They encountered the true and living God by the work of the Holy Spirit that draws people to Christ. In a year when some blacks were still being murdered, thousands and thousands of people in Los Angeles, black and white, were embracing each other in love and forgiveness and joy of the Holy Spirit. And that's the power of God to change lives. And God has given his power and this message to his church. Today in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, uh, this passage remind, uh, reminds us of God's work to prepare us for his mission. So we're going to look first at, at verses 11 through 13. Reclaimed for relationship. We were reclaimed for relationship. And let's uh, look at Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read this uh, together. Uh, here's what the Apostle Paul writes. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at 
that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. So let's uh, break this down a little bit. First, it begins with uh, your need. He's talking to the Ephesians. It's our need. He's talking to the Ephesians. And uh, he wants them to remember their former social position in verse 11. To remember their former social uh, position before they became uh, Christ followers. He says, remember, remember that you who are Gentiles. What's a Gentile? Um, probably most of you know a Gentile is anyone who is not a Jewish person by ethnicity or religion. Uh, by, it's by ethnicity, which includes religion. Um, and um, they were called the uncircumcision by Jewish people. Uh, and it was a derogatory term to be called, uh, called the uncircumcised. The Jewish people understood themselves to be God's chosen people. And that was true from Genesis chapter 12. Uh, God had selected them out for a specific purpose, uh, for some reasons to uh, bring his word and promises and a Messiah uh, to this world. But uh, they kind of misunderstood some of this role, and they began to see themselves as more important than anybody else in the world. And uh, this this concept of uncircumcision, it's it's about it's the opposite of circ, uh, circumcision. Um, the uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. God had given the Jewish people a practice to uh, for every male child eight days old to be circumcised at a that the foreskin to be removed from the male child and it was a physical marker and it was to be done as an act of obedience in faith it was for God's people and it separated them from other peoples other people groups and they did it out of obedience at least that was the plan but they began to see themselves as more valuable than other people and a great pride came out of this and they began to look down on other people, everyone else, Gentiles. And so they had a very low view. So remember your formal social position, verse 11, but also remember your former spiritual condition, verse 12. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. And this applies Exactly to us. There was a time when we were separate from Christ. Um, Remember that at that time you, the Ephesians, were separate from Christ. Remember this. Think about this. Don't forget it. You were once separated from Christ. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All people have sinned. There's a problem with sin. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, uh, eternal death, separation from God, separation from God for eternity. 
Uh, You were separate from Christ. You were excluded from the citizenship in Israel. You were not once a part of God's believing community. Now, we know that not all Israel were believers genuinely. Some were just uh, physically Jewish and religious, but not necessarily were they genuine believers. But the Ephesians were excluded from this group of a believing community that God had created. And they were foreigners to the covenants of promise. You were outside God's covenant. We, um, you, we could say you were outside God's contract. God had a contractual agreement with his people, but covenant is way beyond a contract. It's a lot bigger and uh, way bigger commitment. And, and you don't walk away from it. Um, just like marriage. Um, you were a stranger a foreigner to the covenants of promise. There were um, major covenants in the Old Testament. There was the Abrahamic covenant from Genesis 12 on. There was the uh, God's promise to Abraham that he would bless him with family and bless him eventually with the Messiah. There was uh, the Mosaic covenant that God gave through Moses and he gave the Ten Commandments and he gave the laws to the nation on how they should live. There was... Um, the Palestinian covenant in Deuteronomy 28 through 32, where uh, God said to his people, if you obey, I will bless you, bless your socks off. If you disobey, you're in for some big trouble. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come down hard on you. There was a Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. God promised to David, David, you're going to have a son and he's going to reign on this throne forever. He's going to have an eternal kingdom. That's a pretty unique person, and that would be the Messiah, Jesus. These were covenants that God made with his people. And the the Gentiles, the Ephesians here, were outside. They never were a part of that. Uh, They didn't have an opportunity to experience some of God's blessings. And uh, the most important one was the promise of Messiah and his eternal kingdom. And they were without hope and without God in the world. Now, the Ephesians people were very religious people beforehand. If you remember way back in the book of Acts, they had Artemis. They, they worshipped the goddess Artemis. She fell from the sky, and um, they, they, they had a great silver trade in Ephesus where they made these little uh, repl- replicas of Artemis, and they sold them, and they wore them, and, they, and uh, it was a kind of good luck. But they didn't have any hope. They were without hope. There was no, nothing eternally significant about that. There was no real hope beyond this life. No hope of forgiveness. No hope of something better. No hope of eternity. No hope to be with God and other people for eternity. We were reclaimed for relationship. And then verse 13 describes this extreme makeover. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, there's been a change, Ephesians. You are now in Christ Jesus. You've become a Christ follower. You've been placed in Christ. You've been united with Christ. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away 
have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Big change. You were once way far from God. Now you've been brought near. Now you've been brought into a relationship with God through Christ. And it was by the blood of Jesus Christ. His blood was shed on the cross. This blood represents his sacrificial death. And we remember that this morning during a time of communion. His blood was shed for us. We were brought near by the blood of Christ. His blood paid for our sin penalty. Remember the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. Those are the consequences, death. The good news is, Romans uh, 5.8, but God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died in our place. And because of that, we can be brought near. That means we can uh, come into a close relationship with God. We can be close to God. We can know God personally. We can know God intimately if we pursue that. We have a relationship, but how close do you want to be? To know Him, to hear Him, to communicate with Him, to dialogue with Him, to trust Him. And when we get to know God in an intimate way, He gives us desires to follow Him. By the way, what was God up to in the Azusa Street Revival? John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35 it's what Jesus instructed his followers and what Jesus instructs us. And this is what you said. And I give you love one another. At that revival, the barriers came down about differences, about ethnicities, about social standing. Love one another as I have loved you so that you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If you are the real deal, it's going to show in the way you treat other people. We see how this develops in the next section in We're Redeemed for Peace. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Redeemed for peace. Now let's see what the scripture says about this. Verse 14. For he himself, referring to Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing purpose with flesh, the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace and in in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near for through him we both have access to the father by one spirit so we were redeemed for peace why First of all, to remove our hostility. Did you ever think of that before in this way? 
you, if you are a follower of Christ, were redeemed to remove your hostility toward other people. Is there anybody that you're upset with? Anybody that you're mad at? Anybody that you're angry with? Anybody that you despise? Jesus died to remove your hostility. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. He himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace. How about Romans 5, 1? Being uh, justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus died for us, and he gave this opportunity for a relationship with God to be at peace because our sin caused us to have enmity with God. God couldn't have a relationship with us because of our sin, but Jesus uh, removed that enmity. He resolved that conflict between God and us, that sin barrier, and he is our peace who has made the two groups one, and, of course, in, the, in this uh, New Testament period, the Jewish people who were to be God's people, um, they had separated themselves and they had a barrier. They didn't really... Uh, God's intention was that they were to be a light to the Gentiles. They were to be ambassadors and represent God well. Instead, they had gotten so separated, they thought they were better than the rest of the world and they couldn't have relationships with them. Because they would become unclean if they had relationships with these people. Um, but Jesus intended to bring these groups together and to destroy the, the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus destroyed the wall of hostility. Jesus destroyed hostility. And then he made these two groups into one. These groups that didn't really like each other very much. Yes, there were always a few proselytes, Gentiles, who attached themselves to the Jewish faith, but they were still viewed as just a cut below genuine Jewish people. Um, so Jesus made these two groups into one, and he destroyed the barrier. He destroyed the wall. How did the wall get there? By setting aside, verse 15, in his flesh, the law with its commands and regulations. Jesus' death set aside the law. The law of God created the barrier where God's people were separate. They were set apart for God for service, but they ended up with the wrong attitude about it. We're supposed to be set apart for service. We're supposed to be holy but it's not, it doesn't make us superior to the rest of the world. It just makes us usable in God's hands. Jesus' death put an end to the law. It fulfilled the law, actually. And uh, it was the law who um, had the Jewish people do circumcision. And that separated them. It was the law that... Uh, instructed them about their dress. It was the law that instructed them about their diet and who they were going to eat their meals with. Um, it was the law that instructed them on how to live. And that certainly separated them on the moral choices that they made. But they developed this religious perspective that put them a cut above the rest of the world, at least 
the high number of them did. You'll always find genuine believers among God's people. But not all who were religious were genuine. But setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace. So Jesus' death had this purpose to make peace out of hatred and hostility. And he well intended that this carry over to us for our day-to-day living. Verse 16, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Once again, Jesus put to death the hostility of people. That's his plan. That's what he did. That's why Paul said in Romans 12, 18, this is for followers of Christ. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. As far as it, what, it's your responsibility. You can't make everybody else be at peace with you. But you can be at peace, as far as it depends on you, with them. So that means no grudges. That means I need to forgive people. That means I don't have a right to hate people. That means I need to be careful how I speak about other people. Jesus died for your peace and relationships. He died to put your hostility toward toward others to death, no matter how badly you've been offended. He died so that you could forgive. Verse 17, he came came and preached peace to you who were far away, you Gentiles, you Ephesians, to, to preach peace far away and peace to, to those who were near. Who are those groups? Well, those who were near were the Jewish people in the land of Israel, and that's primarily where Jesus preached. In fact, we don't know where he ever went outside of Israel. So how did he preach to people far away? There were a few Gentiles in Israel that heard him. How did he preach peace far away? Through his body, through the apostles, through people like the Apostle Paul going to Ephesus. Jesus was preaching. Jesus, the head of the body, was proclaiming the good news just like he does today through his church. Jesus does not want you to have hostility to people in your church family, or to other believers. So, um, who has offended you? What believers have offended you or hurt you? Um, How about, has your wife offended you? Has your husband offended you? Has your children offended you? Have your friends offended you? Has somebody else, another believer, offended you in some way? Uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 21 tells us this. Do not, take refren- do not take revenge, my dear friends. Uh, sometimes we get angry at others who have hurt us, and we want to get back at them. Um, and, and God says, don't do it. Leave room for God's wrath. So God has a responsibility for when people hurt you and offend you and sin against you. He has a responsibility. 
For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. It's God's job. Verse 20, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, so this is, these just aren't nice people. These are people you view as your enemies. Um, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Um, that, that's got to be hard. How do you do that? I don't like my enemies. Um, in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. So God has a plan for our hostility toward others. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Um, so if you're stuck right now with hostility towards someone else, somebody who's hurt you, somebody who's offended you, said something about you, you are being overcome by evil. Do not be overcome by evil. Well, that's the, that's the church family. Those are other believers, whether they're in our local church family or another church family. But what about outside the body? Jesus does not want us to have hostility with those outside, with those who are non-Christians. We sometimes make the distinction, yeah, I know I'm supposed to treat other believers well. We're also supposed to pe- treat non-believers well. Matthew 5.43 says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was like the common practice in the first century among the Jewish people. to love your. They knew they were supposed to love their neighbor, uh, but it was okay to hate their enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Persecute you. Pray for your government when they persecute you. Pray for those you disagree with. Pray for those who attack you. Pray for those who want to harm you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. That would be showing your ID, wouldn't it? That you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So, who is your enemy? Does anybody come to mind when you think about hostility? Um, Jesus died to remove your and my hostility. Is he wasting it on us? Verse 18, you were redeemed for peace to make the ground level at the foot of the cross. To make the ground level. That's, what, that's one of those idioms that we use. Uh, the Azusa Street Revival is a beautiful picture of the gospel. For blacks and whites and Asians and uh, Latino. And today, we would, if it were LGBT and, and uh, straight people. Uh, for men and women, for rich and poor. that people have equal value before God. When they come to faith in Christ, they have equal value before God. And um, 
Not only that, not only that, that every person, rich or poor, black or white, whatever our background, we all come to God same way. The ground is level at the foot of the cross because we all must come by the cross. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father. We all have to come that way. We are to accept people with their differences inside the body. It's amazing how God, uh, you know, he's taken us. We're a bunch, we're weird people. We have quirkiness and jerkiness and stuff. And he's taken us and he's put us into one and he wants us to get along and he wants us to be on mission. So we tend to, we rub each other the wrong way and we have weird personalities. And then he says, okay, I want you to follow Christ. I want you to submit to his lordship. And you have some rough edges and I'm going to work with you to help you uh, so we can all work together. And uh, Philippians 2, 3, it's one of those passages Uh, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Instead of hostility, come with humility and think about value. Value others above yourself. Um, Romans 12, uh, 16. Another passage. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not... Be conceited. And, and the idea of being conceited is the idea of being puffed up. It's big head. I'm way too good. And um, so uh, as you think about your life, is there anybody in your life that you think is less important than you? Value others above yourselves. Associate with people of low position. So what about outside the body? That's inside. That's the church family. Those are believers. What about outside the body? What about people who are far from God? We have a core value at the bridge where we say people far from God matter to him. Lost people matter to God, and therefore they matter to us. And so when we think about that, John 3.16 is one of those passages where it says, For God so loved the world... That means God so loved every human being. He he loved them enough to send his son. And uh, that's an appropriate attitude for us who call ourselves followers of Christ on how we view people outside of the faith. Because how, how do people get inside without love? God loved the world, and he's using his church to love the world right now. That's where people learn about Jesus. It's through people in the church family. For God so loved the world that he gave us one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Okay, let's go on to the last section, Reconciled for Expansion. Reconciled for expansion, verses 19 through 22. Paul writes, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, 
but fellow citizens with God people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. We were reconciled for expansion, verses 19 through 22. Reconciled for expansion, for growth of this body. Verse 19, we have a new family. When God redeemed us, he placed us in a new family, the family of God. Look at verse 19. Consequently, because of the death of Christ and your faith in him, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. You once were. You were strangers to the, and foreigners to the covenants of promise. But now you are fellow citizens with God's people. You've been joined together into one and also members of his household. Family term. We are in God's family now. Believers are to be one, all in one big happy family, right? Well, yeah. Doesn't always work that way. But we are a family. God has become our Heavenly Father. How did that happen? When we placed our faith in Christ, we were born again. We were born again spiritually. Uh, we became children of God. And so what, what does that make us? If I'm a child of God and you're a child of God, I'm your older brother. Uh, we are a family. Welcome to the family. We could have a, a growth group like that. Um, Romans uh, fifteen seven. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. As we welcome other believers, as we have this attitude of, I'm glad you're here, I'm glad you're a part of the body of Christ, uh, as we accept one another, we bring praise to God. We bring honor to God. We have a new foundation, verse 20. We are being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself at the cornerstone. First century architecture, the cornerstone was the most important stone in the structure because it set the right angle from the beginning. Foundation was laid on top. That's how you got a building that was plumb, that was upright instead of leaning to the side. It was about the cornerstone. And Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And the foundation of this building, this metaphorical building that God is building right now, the foundation is, are, are the apostles and the prophets. These are New Testament prophets, not Old Testament prophets. They were the prophets uh, that we see in the book of Acts. Uh, it was their foundational ministry that established the church. And Jesus, his death was the cornerstone. Um, and Jesus is the one who holds this building together. Verses 21 and 22, there's a new function, a new family, a new foundation, and a new function. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. So here's that metaphor. It's a metaphor of a temple. The church is like a temple, like a 
like a physical structure. And in him, Christ, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. God is building his church. God is building this temple one stone at a time. The apostles and the prophets. And then as 1 Peter chapter 2 talks about, every person who comes to faith is a living stone. This is an organism. It's alive. It's not a dead structure or static. It's a living organism. And God is building his church one person at a time. And he's still doing it. And this... this uh, whole building is joined is joined together presently it's still being joined together and it's still rising to become a holy temple god is building his church it's exactly what uh jesus said in matthew 16 and uh he was with his disciples and he says i tell you that you are peter and on this rock on this rock refers to his confession of faith right before this passage when he, when he said that you are the Christ, the Son of God, he says, on this confession of your faith, I will build my church, Jesus said, and the gates of hell, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus said, I will do this, I will build. That's what he's doing right now. And the great thing is, is he's doing it. I don't have to do it. He's doing it. He's going to do it through us, and that's his plan. His plan is that his church is on a mission His plan is for us to help people connect with God and to develop them into fully devoted followers of Christ. In Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, and, uh, just let me step back and say for a second, uh, so God is building this temple. And remember, in the Old Testament, there was a temple in Jerusalem, and it was a place of worship. And there was only one place for worship where uh, this could take place, and it had to be in Jerusalem. And uh, there was a priesthood there, and, there, and sacrifices were made there. It was the only place that sacrifices could be made. And it was the temple. And God resided there. He actually departed later. But the intention was God resided in this temple. Uh, but God departed. And his ultimate plan was to send Jesus. And, and God was in Jesus. And, uh, because Jesus was God. And then Jesus uh, paid the price for our sin. And he went back to heaven and uh, he started this new thing called the church. And it was his body. And now he's back dwelling in his body, which is a temple. A temple is you individually. You're a te- your body is a temple. And corporately, we are a temple. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Uh, Jesus reminds us of our mission. This was... Uh, One of those final things he said after the resurrection, before he ascended, he said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. That's our job. That's our mission. We're to make disciples of all nations, all people. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey, become fully devoted followers, and everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So this is our mission, and here's the deal. How we treat people makes all the difference. How we treat people who are Christians makes all the difference. How we treat people who are non-Christians makes all the difference. And how God uses us on mission. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, uh, for your church. Thank you for um, Paul's word. 
in Ephesians chapter 2 and remind us about how Jesus died to remove hostility and how Jesus died to remove hostility in our hearts. Father, show us those people that we have hostility toward. Enable us to forgive. Help us to be people humbly serving together on mission to show other people what you're like so they can experience forgiveness as well. In Jesus' name, amen.